And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. Then there arose some from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia, disputing with Stephen. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. Then they secretly induced men to say, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people, the elders, the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him to the council. They also set up false witnesses who said, This man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. And all who sat in the council, looking steadfastly at him, saw his face as the face of an angel. And then the high priest said, Are these things so? And at that point, from verse 2 down really through to verse 53, Stephen then enters into a defense describing the events of Israel's history, how they responded in resistance. He then brings his sermon to a close with an application point. Look down in chapter 7, verse 51. Here's the application point we'll see at the closure of this sermon. You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom you now have become betrayers and murderers, whom have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. And Father, we... Humbly ask as we open the word of God now together this morning that your spirit would speak to us. And Lord, even as we sort of survey a more lengthy section of the word of God together as it flows together with the events taking place, we pray that your spirit would still meet us and minister to us and that by the word of God, you would say things to us that we need to hear. Nourish our soul, feed us and strengthen us spiritually. And we pray you just speak to our hearts. And we ask together in Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, could it be possible that right now in your life, maybe you've recently been trying to be faithful to the Lord and faithful to the will of God and maybe yielding to the Holy Spirit, and you find in the midst of that, you are facing forces of resistance and it seems like there's restriction against you trying to yield to what the Holy Spirit would want to do and there's opposition you're facing. Or on the other side of that, could it be possible that instead maybe right now in your life to some degree, maybe you're actually guilty of resisting perhaps or rejecting what God is seeking to be doing in your life or among you, that maybe you're on the other side of that. You're resisting what the Spirit of God is trying to do. Well, look, in either camp, if that is true, this section of Scripture has things to teach us in regards to that very thing. Acts chapter 6, verse 8, all the way through the end of chapter 7, verse 60, is a record of the events of the life of Stephen and his interaction here with the religious council, the Sanhedrin, and it really displays God's continual faithfulness despite man's resistance of what God is doing, despite man's rejection of what God is offering. We're going to find here repeated references to things like man disputing with what God's doing, false accusations being made. We're going to see references to God's people turning away, people not obeying and resisting what God is doing. Chapter 8, or excuse me, chapter 6 Verse 8 through 15, the last section of chapter 6, gives to us really a record of Stephen's faithfulness to serve the Lord despite the resistance that's coming against him. Then as we get to uh, chapter 7 from verse 1 down through 53, we see Stephen giving a biblical defense there of God's plan that was unfolding and how God's plan was always at work despite Israel's constant resistance and rejection of what God was trying to do among them. 
And then the last part of chapter 7, verse 54 through 60, we see a reference to the first martyr in the early church. We see Stephen actually being killed for his faithful representation of Christ and the hostile resistance against that. Now, though it's a lengthy section, it really is, in all honesty, best to sort of take a a big picture view. And so what I want to do this morning is sort of look at those first two sections, which would take us through the end of really the end of Stephen's sermon. And again, you feel really bad to interrupt a guy in a sermon, right? So we, we, we don't want to do that. If he starts a sermon, we want to let him finish his sermon. So we're, we're going to kind of, in light of that, try and make our way through the end of chapter 7. And then next week, we'll look at verses 54 through the remainder of chapter 7 and kind of see the response and draw some applications out of that as well. Remember the background of chapter 6, and it does apply to where we're going this morning. We just saw that Stephen had been selected and appointed to a position of service within the church. Remember last time in chapter 6, we saw there that in the days when the numbers of disciples was multiplying, that a complaint arose within the church. Things were happening. There was more going on and one group was upset with another group and so people were starting to kind of bicker and complain. Things weren't going the way that they were before. Something new is happening now and it was causing a need for adjustment and so to settle that dispute and resolve, remember the leadership came together and they said, look, it wouldn't be good or desirable for us to leave the teaching and attention of of ministering the word of God to begin to just take over this business or maybe continue to operate this business of serving the widows because there are others who could do this efficiently. So they said, look, this is what we recommend. Why don't you select from among yourselves seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, and let's appoint them over this business and let them focus on that ministry and the practical aspects of, of the food distribution program and some of the practical affairs that needed to happen for the church to operate. And we will give ourselves continually to the word of God in prayer. And the saying pleased the whole multitude. They appointed seven men. And God blessed this adjustment that the church made at that time. Well, one of the seven men who we saw was appointed to this ministry of waiting upon and serving the tables and caring for the widows in that practical affair of the church was Stephen. So Stephen has been appointed to this role of faithful service and practical ministry. And now in verse 8, the Bible shows us something goes on to take place in Stephen's life. It says, verse 8, And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. So take notice now what's happening is we see the Lord bringing growth, you could say, in progress to the manifestation of Stephen's ministry within the church. Here is Stephen. He's not one of the 12 apostles. He's not Peter or James or John. Thus far, we've read about Peter and James and John experiencing the miraculous work of Jesus happening through their life and doing signs and wonders. Now, this is somebody who has really been functioning kind of like a deacon, fulfilling practical roles of service within the church, operating the food distribution program, taking care of the food pantry, making sure the widows are taken care of. And now we see this man, Stephen, it says here, doing great wonders and signs among the people. Again, what was Stephen? Not an apostle. He was just a faithful Christian servant within the church who was fulfilling the opportunities that God had given to him, but because Stephen was faithfully doing the ministry that was assigned to him, what you see now is the Lord expanding his sphere of ministry. Because he was faithful in the little things, because he was faithful in serving tables and caring for practical things, the Lord's now using him for greater things. He started out doing practical work. Now he's actually experiencing the power of the Lord to do miracles in the name of Jesus and having a much greater impact and influence as the Lord expands his role of service, which just reminds us again, as we've said before, that faithfulness matters to the Lord. It matters. Jesus said, he who is faithful in little will be faithful in much. Jesus said, he who is faithful, you were faithful over a few things. He says, Matthew 25, you'll be made ruler over many things. And we see this principle in scripture. 
of how if we are faithful in what is small, that that allows the Lord to be able to entrust us with more and to give us greater opportunity to expand our sphere of ministry or influence. Notice as well the connection to faith and power. It says Stephen was full of faith and power. Again, the idea there is, is because he was a man, we read back in chapter 6, it says in verse 5 that he was full of faith in the Holy Spirit. Because he believed God for great things, God was doing great things through his life. He was a man who believed, you know what, I believe the Lord wants to work. And because he was full of faith and he believed that the Lord wanted to work and he believed in the power of the Lord, the ministry of God's Spirit was flowing through his life and he was being used to a great extent. Well, verse 9, when these things were going on, it says there arose some from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen, Cyrenians and Alexandrians, those from Cilicia and Asia, and they were disputing with Stephen. Now, it says there the synagogue of the freedmen. The idea of the freedmen is sort of a, just a, a reference, a title to a way to identify that particular synagogue in the same way, you know, for example, as a, a Calvary chapel, sometimes, you know, well, this is Calvary chapel of this city or Calvary chapel of that city or the first Methodist church of this particular city or lo- well, this is kind of the idea. This was the synagogue of the freedmen. And the implication here is these were a group of men who at one time were slaves in the Roman empire who had obtained their freedom and as freed slaves from the Roman Empire, there were men who had been freed from slavery in the past. They now took that identity to themselves. These are particularly probably Hellenist and Greek Jews who were from different locations who met in this area and established a, a synagogue in Jewish law would only require that 10 men be present to establish a new synagogue. So they identify themselves by this way. And you notice that there are people from different areas, Cyrenians, those from Northern Africa, Alexandrians, a reference to sort of the Greco-Roman territories, those from Cilicia. Now that's of interest because Cilicia, interestingly enough, tells us that that is very likely that this is the synagogue that Saul of Tarsus may have been in because the Bible tells us later on regarding Saul of Tarsus, who becomes Paul the Apostle, that Saul was from Tarsus and Tarsus was a city of Cilicia, which makes this very interesting because it is very possible that here is some of the first reference to Saul who ultimately becomes Paul the Apostle, being exposed to the things of Christianity. And it's very likely that this was the synagogue that Stephen was once a part of, and Saul was also a part of this synagogue. And what very likely happened is Stephen accepts Christ. He becomes born again. He realizes as a Jew uh, that Jesus is the Messiah. And now he recognizes who the Savior and Messiah is. And he's all excited about Jesus. So all of a sudden he gets saved and he starts telling everybody in the synagogue, hey, let me tell you about what happened. I met Jesus Christ and I'm a Christian. And so he's sharing this in the synagogue. And likely all those in the synagogue aren't taking too fondly to this. So it says they start to dispute with him. They start to resist him. Again, this would kind of be the same idea. Imagine if, you know, a church was assembled for a long period of time and and lots of people were attending it, but maybe the gospel wasn't actually being preached within that church. And people were assembling, but the true gospel message wasn't being conveyed. And so maybe you have a, a church that could exist that has a lot of people that aren't even saved in it. And then all of a sudden somebody gets born again and they start evangelizing the church. And all of a sudden, everybody's like, what are you doing? That's, and, and it just causes sort of this uproar. And this is the idea. Stephen now, he's sharing about Christ fervently. So they start disputing with him and resisting him. And notice verse 10, it says, but they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. Though they was debating with rabbis and trained scholars, notice this man that was nothing other than a table waiter within the early church had such insight and such truth and was so empowered by the Holy Spirit that he, whether it was the smartest people, again, people like Saul of Tarsus, who was a gifted rabbi, it says they were just not able to resist the wisdom 
in the spirit by which he spoke. The power of the spirit and supernatural wisdom was so evident that they just couldn't resist anything that he was saying. It tells us in uh, Luke's gospel, chapter 21, that Jesus predicted this. Luke 21, Jesus said, they will lay hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons before kings and rulers for my name's sake. But it will turn out for you as an occasion for testimony. I will give you a mouth and wisdom, which all your adversaries will not be able to contradict or resist. So Jesus had spoken about these very things. And now Stephen is experiencing this. Jesus said, listen, some of your greatest you know, detractors, some of the people who will resist you the most when you serve me faithfully and represent me faithfully, he says, is not going to be just people in the world. It's going to be the religious community because they're going to be bothered that you're saying your religious experience is not enough. And you need to be right with Jesus. And you can be very religious, but if you don't know Jesus personally, things are not right between you and God. And he says, they're going to get so angry. They're going to resist you. They're going to persecute you. They're going to want to come against you. But Jesus said, it will turn out as an occasion for testimony. And I'll give you wisdom in such a way supernaturally, they won't be able to resist what you share of the truth of God and the gospel message. And here we see Stephen experiencing that very thing. Well, since they couldn't resist him, verse 11, they came up with another tactic. It says, then they secretly induced men, that is, they found some liars, and you can find those when you need them, saying, we have heard him speak blasphemous words, that is, insulting, irreverent words against Moses, who they greatly reverenced, and God, blaspheming God, and they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and they seized him. They took him into physical custody and they brought him to the council. Again, that's the Sanhedrin. Remember the religious ruling council of the, the uh, day in Israel, that 71 member ruling council made up of scribes and Pharisees and Sadducees and ruled over by the high priest. So this religious ruling council with great authority, they, they now take, seize, uh, take Stephen into custody and they set up false witnesses who said, this man does not cease, so it just gets more intense, to speak blasphemous words against this holy place that is against the temple and against the law that is the law of God. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. So again, when people don't want to hear the truth, they will do whatever is necessary to silence it. And that's what's happening here. So they raise up some false witnesses and liars to launch these accusations that were not true against Stephen, saying that he was blaspheming against, notice, God and against Moses, that he's blaspheming the law of God and the temple of God, and, and that even Jesus was going to cause interference to those things that God had instituted. They say, we've heard him say that Jesus of Nazareth, who he keeps talking about, is going to, interesting, verse 14, destroy this place and change the customs of Moses. Now, again, there's a twist on Jesus's words. Remember, they asked Jesus during the time of his ministry to give a sign to validate his authority. And Jesus said, destroy this temple in three days. I'll raise it up again. And Jesus said that not in reference to the physical temple, but in reference to the temple of his body whereby the presence of God was genuinely dwelling. But they, of course, took that and took it out of context, as often can be the case when people want to twist our words. And so they're, they're, they're utilizing these statements and trying to make Stephen as if somehow he's a blasphemer, that he's against all the things of God, that he's trying to change the ways of God. And so they say he's trying to change all that which is precious and important. He's a blasphemer. And verse 15 says, And all who sat in the council looking steadfastly at him, saw his face as the face of an angel. Again, there probably an implication that some glow, some divine indication that the presence of God was with this man. And rather than being angry at them or venomous, he's just kind of glowing with the love of God. And so evident, interesting, they, they say you're blaspheming Moses and now just like Moses 
whose face glowed in the Old Testament, now his face is kind of just radiating with a sense of the presence of God being in this man's life. He's standing before these people who are threatening him, who could take his life and ultimately will. And it's at that point, chapter 7, verse 1, that the high priest then says to Stephen, are these things so? In other words, he's asking, are these accusations and charges that are being made against you, that you're blaspheming God and blaspheming Moses and the law and the temple of God, are these things true? Now, I assure you that high priest regretted asking that question. Because at that point, Stephen thought, well, if you genuinely want to know, I'll be glad to answer you. And you know, sometimes a question is the greatest opportunity to speak for the Lord. So they say, answer for yourself. Are these accusations true? And he said, verse 2, here's where his defense and sort of somewhat of a sermon happens. And what Stephen is going to do from verse 2 down through verse 53 is he's going to give an answer, a biblical defense for what is true and what is not true. And he's going to show, in essence, should this be more difficult for you to swallow and you do not off, he's going to show, I'm going to tell you on the front, he's going to show that Israel had a proven track record of rejecting and resisting those that God sent to them as servants and deliverers and saviors that all throughout their history that they had this problem of continually refusing those that God would send to them, whether it was with Moses or Joseph or, or whoever it was that they had this chronic issue of always rejecting and always refusing what God was trying to do. And what Stephen is going to say, this same pattern is now just continuing with Jesus. Now God sent you the ultimate deliverer, the ultimate savior, and in the same way, you are just resisting and rejecting him once again. Now to do this, he recounts a summary of the history of Israel, kind of highlighting some of the major events. And let me just say, this man's grasp of the Old Testament scriptures is astounding, that he is able with such, you know, eloquence to just sort of rehearse in a very summarized form books of Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy and all the way through up the time of 1 Samuel and 1 and 2 Kings, the days all the way through Solomon and David, and to summarize, hitting just the highlights of those things. It's just phenomenal, which just shows me again, this man is a very effective tool to be used by the Lord because he has a good working knowledge of the word of God. And that's why he was used powerfully and effectively. He was full of the Holy Spirit, but you know what else he was full of? He was full of the Word of God. And if you want to be used greatly by the Lord, certainly you want to be full of the power of the Holy Spirit, but it's also good to be full of a good grasp and understanding of the Word of God so that the Lord can use you as you speak on his behalf. So Stephen now gives his answer beginning in verse 2. He says, Brethren and fathers, listen. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham <clears throat> when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Haran. And he said to him, get out of your country and from your relatives to a land that I will show you. So he begins with, of course, none other than father Abraham, the man who was the father, the founding man, if you would, of the Jewish nation, the people of Israel. And he says, listen, even if we go all the way back to Abraham, he says, God revealed himself to Abraham, spoke to Abraham, he said, during the time when he was in Mesopotamia, before he ever came and dwelt in the area of Haran, and he spoke to him with a calling saying, get out of your country, leave your family and relatives, and come to a land, notice, that I will show you. And what, what he's wanting to indicate here, this reality, that the call and the blessing of Abraham was a total work of grace. And here's why. Because Joshua 24 tells us that Abraham and his fathers in the land of Mesopotamia, living on the other side of the river, it literally says in Joshua 24 that they served and worshipped foreign gods. They were idolaters. In other words, when God called Abraham... 
into his blessing. It was a complete act of grace. There was nothing of merit or worth in Abraham. Abraham was an idolater. He was living completely outside of the ways of God, but yet God in his grace took initiative and called this man by his grace to bring him into a relationship with the one true and living God, even as God saves us by grace through faith. It's not of works. It's not of religious efforts. It's nothing of what we deserve. It's a total act of the grace of God for any of us to come into a relationship with his son, Jesus Christ. So he says, look, God spoke to him before he ever even entered the area of Haran. Verse four, then he came out of the land of the Chaldeans and he dwelt in Haran. And from there, when his father was dead, God then moved him to this land in which you now dwell. Notice that speaks as well there of Abraham's incomplete faith and incomplete obedience. It says he dwelt in the area of Haran until the time that his father died and then God moved him into the actual land of promise he was supposed to be. What happened is Abraham partially obeyed He didn't fully obey and he stopped in Haran and something of delay happened where he did not trust God to walk fully into everything God was calling him to do. He kind of partially took a step and then he hesitated and he hedged and he dwelt in Haran for a season until his father died and then once again he then took the next step which Abraham should have instantly and completely and fully obeyed God. So again, he's pointing out, look, Abraham, who who you think is so special, Abraham, he had his failures. He was a sinner like the rest of us, Stephen's trying to say. His faith wasn't perfect. He didn't completely obey God. There was nothing special about him, particularly as a person. Verse 5, he says, And then God gave him no inheritance, not even enough to set his foot on. But when Abraham had no child yet, God promised to give it to him for a possession and to his descendants after him. But God spoke in this way, that his descendants would dwell in a foreign land and that they would bring them into bondage and oppress them for 400 years, the time they would be down in Egypt, Israel. And the nation to whom they will be in bondage, God declared, I will judge, said God. And then after that, they shall come out and serve me in this place. So God gave to Abraham, as we know from Genesis, a promise. That, that his descendants would become those who would bring blessing to all the world. Abraham had no child yet. God promised him a land that didn't belong to him yet. But here God was giving him these promises and God was the one who would orchestrate and bring about those promises by his power and work among Abraham and his descendants. And again, the Bible tells us that it was only when Abraham believed God that then God accounted him as righteous. In other words, God made him right with with himself by nothing other than Abraham's faith in the very promises that God gave to him. In the same way, Stephen is trying to say, listen, nothing new with Jesus. The only way a person can be right with God is when they believe the promise of God about Jesus Christ. A person doesn't get righteous by the things they do or what they accomplish. A person becomes right when they embrace the promise of eternal life that's offered through Jesus Christ. In the same way Abraham was made righteous by his faith and his faith alone, verse 8, he says, and then he gave him the covenant of circumstance, underline that word, of circumcision, excuse me, Under, circle that word then. The idea is after he was made righteous, he received the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham then begot Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac begot Jacob and Jacob begot the 12 patriarchs, those who became the 12 tribes of Israel. Again, Stephen indicating that the covenant of circumcision, which the Jews put great stock in religiously, He's saying God didn't give him the covenant of circumcision, Genesis 17, that sign of the inward work that happened in his life until after God already made him righteous. In other words, what Stephen is trying to convey again, look, it's not keeping rites and rituals and the covenant of circumcision that makes a person righteous. Circumcision was just a outward observance of the inward experience that already happened in his life. In the same way with us today, something like baptism. Water baptism does not make a person right with God. 
Water baptism is the outward observance and the representation of the inward work that's already happened in someone's life. So he brings Abraham as witness to the stand and the examples of Abraham's life and the, how these things portrayed what God's ultimate intention was through Christ. He then comes next to Joseph. He says in verse 9, And the patriarchs, becoming envious, that is the 12 sons of Jacob, became envious and they sold Joseph into Egypt. Remember, Joseph started to have these dreams. God's hand was upon him. God was revealing to Joseph that one day he would be a ruler. And Joseph started telling his older brothers, hey, I'm having these really cool dreams. God's telling me one day I'm going to rule over all of you. Well, typically older brothers don't like if a younger brother says something like that. So remember, they hated Joseph and they ultimately threw him into a pit and then they sold him off to a band of Ishmaelite traders who then brought him down to Egypt and sold him as a slave. And so Joseph, out of envious treatment from his brothers, was sold off into Egypt. Notice verse 9, but God was with him through all of his hardships and delivered him out of all his troubles. And God did that with Joseph's life. Did Joseph go through some really hard things? Yeah, but God was with him through every hardship and God delivered him out of all his troubles and all his mistreatment. And you know what? Sometimes you and I may be subjected to hardships and mistreatment and painful experiences, but the wonderful thing is that God will be with you through all of those hardships. Even if it's the pain that comes directly from your own family that wounds you or hurts you the most, God will be with you and God can deliver you out of all your troubles and all your hardships. And he can be with you when no one else is with you in the midst of those things. God was a constant presence with Joseph, even in a foreign land there in Egypt when his family abandoned him, lied to their father and said that he had been murdered and killed by an animal. God was with him, delivered him out of his troubles, gave him favor and wisdom in the presence of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and made him governor over Egypt and all his house. Remember how ultimately God worked and worked until Joseph became second in command there in Egypt. God put great favor on him from a prisoner to the palace he ultimately went. Now a famine and great trouble came over all the land of Egypt and Canaan. And our fathers, he says, found no sustenance, nothing to eat in the time of the famine. But when Jacob heard there was grain in Egypt, and why? Because Joseph had been sent there and Joseph had a great plan of wisdom to preserve all this grain during a time of plenty. And so therefore, this is what God used to get them to go to the land of Egypt. Jacob sent his sons there, verse 13, and the second time that they saw their brother Joseph after many years, Joseph was made known to his brothers and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. Now take notice, what's the Bible portraying there again? The picture, he's saying, just like with Joseph, God raised up Joseph to be a deliverer. And the first time Joseph tried to reveal himself to his brothers, they refused him. You're not our deliverer. You're not going to rule over us. And then he went through a process where he was separated from them for a time. And then notice for the verse 13. And then the second time that they saw Joseph, he was made known to them. And they realized, you, you are this one who was sent to save us. You are our deliverer. When they went there and Joseph years later said, hey guys, I'm your brother Joseph. And they realized, oh my goodness, you were sent by God to save us and to spare our family. Just like what will happen with the Jews. Just like what happened the first time Jesus, the Bible says, came to his own and his own received him not. But Zechariah 12 tells us that Jesus is coming a second time and they will look upon the one whom they pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. In other words, again, the first time rejection, the second time realizing who the Savior really is. Exactly the same picture of what will happen with Jesus. And Stephen, seeing this, is pointing this reality out to them. Verse 14 says, Then Joseph sent and called his father Jacob and relatives, 75 people. And Jacob then went down to Egypt and he died. He and our fathers, and they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham bought for the sum of money from the sons of Hamur, the father of Shechem. Verse 17, but when the time of the promise drew near, again, God's plan was beginning to unfold. When the time of the promise drew near, then God had sworn to Abraham 
the people started to grow and multiply in Egypt. So now they're in Egypt and they're beginning to multiply their slaves, but they're multiplying and multiplying. And another king arose who didn't know Joseph. And that king wasn't favorable towards Joseph and his family. So they began to be mistreated as slaves, as the Bible records for us in the book of Exodus. It says, this man, the new Pharaoh, dealt treacherously with our people and he oppressed our forefathers making them expose their babies so that they might not live again the bible tells us that the hebrew slaves began to multiply the pharaoh became insecure and so remember he put out this edict that any male child that was born that the hebrew babies were to be thrown in the nile they were to be put to dead to death and they were to, in a sense, put to death their own children or be put to death by the Egyptian people. So now you have this time where this horrible oppression and bondage and slavery is happening to the people in the midst of these things. And verse 20 says, at this time, that is a time of deep need, at a time when people were in slavery and misery and being ruled over by a harsh master, that was oppressing their lives. At this time, Moses was born and was well-pleasing to God and he was brought up in his father's house for three months. But when he was set out, that is when they realized they couldn't hide Moses anymore as a baby, remember they went and they put him in a basket and they sent him down the Nile River, it says, and at that time, as the Bible records to us, he was set out, Pharaoh's daughter found him, took him in and brought him in as her own son. And so Moses, again, being sort of sent ahead by God here, unrecognizable at that first point, was learned in all the wisdom, verse 22, of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and deeds. And now verse 23, when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. So at age 40, Moses is sensing the call of God upon his life. And, and so he has a heart for his people. And his heart is moved to want to go out and help his people. He realizes they're being oppressed and in slavery. It comes upon his heart to visit his people. And seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended and avenged him who was oppressed. And he struck down the Egyptian. Again, the Bible records how it says Moses saw an Egyptian mistreating one of his Hebrew uh, relatives and it bothered him and so Moses it says look this way and he looked that way and then he murdered him and murdered him and buried him in the sand now the mistake Moses made is he looked to the right he looked to the left but he forgot to look up and sometimes we do that I'm going to take matters into my own hand this guy should not be doing this I know I'm called to be the deliverer of these people so he acts initially he puts to death an Egyptian in the anger and rage of the moment and it says that he did this, verse 25, supposing that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver him by his hand, but they did not understand. And the next day he appeared to two of them as they were fighting and he tried to reconcile them. Now this is two Hebrews having an argument the next day. And so Moses interjects and he says, hey guys, what are you doing? We're brothers. Bad enough the Egyptians are hassling us. Let's not fight. Why do you wrong one another? But he who did his neighbor wrong pushed him away saying, who made you ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you did the Egyptian yesterday? Uh-oh, words out what he did. And at this saying, Moses fled and became a dweller in the land of Midian where he then had two sons. So again, the Bible records these events. Moses, the first time it says, thinking his brethren would understand that he was supposed to be their deliverer, came and he tried to reveal himself, but they didn't understand who he was. Instead, it says, verse 27, they pushed him away. They said, we don't want you to rule over us. And then it says, Moses, realizing what had happened, left and went to a land of Midian. He went away where he took a Gentile bride until he ultimately would return later on. Now, boy, doesn't that seem somewhat familiar of exactly what the Bible teaches us in light of Jesus? Again, Jesus comes the first time. He would think as he came to his own, they would recognize him, but instead they did not understand who Jesus really was. They pushed him away 
And they said, we're not going to have you rule over us. We're looking for a savior. We're looking for a judge and a political leader. And Jesus goes away for a time. And what's he doing right now? Taking a Gentile bride before he comes back the second time as Moses will come back a second time. And that's what the Bible speaks of here in verse 30. And when 40 years had passed, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire in a bush, the burning bush scene in the wilderness of Sinai. And when Moses saw it, he marveled at the sight as he drew near to observe. And the voice of the Lord came to him saying, I'm the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses trembled and dared not look. And the Lord said to him, Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. I've surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their groaning, and have come down to deliver them, and now come, I will send you to Egypt. So again, notice God the Father determining the time. Moses, now it is time to go back. To go back to the people who once rejected you. Go back. My heart is burdened for them. They're being severely treated and oppressed. God's heart is moved. Look at verse 35. This Moses, he whom they rejected. This Moses whom they rejected saying, who made you a ruler and judge over us is the one God sent, past tense, to be a ruler and deliverer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush so he brought them out after he had shown wonders and signs in the land of egypt and in the red sea and in the wilderness 40 years again the bible is bringing up this story stephen is bringing up the story because just like joseph the first time rejected by his brothers and they recognized him the second time he came he says look same thing happened with moses i'm not blaspheming moses he says i'm trying to tell you moses was a pitcher Moses came the first time. They rejected him, refused him, and pushed him away and said, you're not going to rule over us. And when he came back 40 years later, when God sent him back, when they were in misery, he says, they then realized the second time, this very Moses, verse 35, that we rejected is who God sent to save us. Exactly what's going to happen with the Jews, where they will realize at the second coming of Christ, oh my goodness, we miss the Savior. Jesus was the Savior who was sent to us before and he went away and now he came back and we realized we rejected our Savior when God sent him to us the first time. So verse 37 says, This is that Moses who said to the children of Israel, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren, him you shall hear. So he says, I'm not blaspheming Moses. Even Moses said, God's going to raise up ultimately the Messiah, a prophet like me. Moses' life was a picture. When you study his life, he's a picture of the salvation that God would bring through Christ. And he says, God was going to send someone like Moses. Moses himself told us that, Stephen says. Deuteronomy 18, he spoke of this reality. Verse 38, this is he who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai. And with the fathers, the one who received the living oracles given to us. That is, Moses received, remember, the law of God, whom our fathers would notice again, our fathers would not obey, but rejected. And in their hearts, they turned back to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Moses' brother, make us gods to go before us. As for this Moses who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered sacrifices to the idol and rejoiced in the works of their own hands. In other words, Stephen is recalling saying, look, we have a history of rejecting what God's trying to do. He says, when Moses went up and received the oracles, the law of God, before he even got back and read the Ten Commandments, they were already breaking them all. Remember, that was what happened. Moses went away and he was on the mountain and the people became you know, impatient and they said, look, well, you don't know what's happened to Moses. You're the new, make us a golden calf. We want something to worship. And he came down and broke the Ten Commandments as he found them just breaking the law of God in the presence of, uh, of the Lord himself, making this calf and worshiping it as an idol. Verse 42, he says, then God turned and gave them up to worship the host of heaven as it is written 
in the book of the prophets, he quotes Amos 5, did you offer me slaughtered animals and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You also took up the tabernacle of Molech, that was the god of child sacrifice, and the star of your god Remphim, that was Saturn worship, images that you made to worship, and God predicted, I will carry you away beyond Babylon, or reference to the 70-year captivity as the consequence of their idolatry against the Lord. Verse 44, he says, Our fathers had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness as he appointed instructing Moses to make it according to the pattern that he had seen, which our fathers, having received it in turn, also brought with Joshua into the land possessed by the Gentiles, whom God drove out. So now we're in the days of Joshua when he drove out the enemies that were opposed to them, trying to bring them into the promised land. He fast forwards all the way to the, to the time of the face of our fathers until the days of David, King David, who found favor before God. And remember, David asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. So David wanted to build, remember, the temple of the Lord. David had a heart. David, who was the picture, again, the son of David, who the messianic promise came through. He says, David wanted to build a temple for God. However, we know the Bible records Solomon was the one chosen to build the temple. So he's now coming to the issue of saying that he's not blaspheming the temple. However, verse 48, he says, the most high does not dwell in temples made with hands. As the prophet says, Isaiah 66, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Has not my hand made all these things so Stephen says look you are so consumed with the structure of the temple and the systems of worship and he says you're 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 so concerned that you're missing the very person that it's all about he says God himself said look you can build me a temple on earth but I don't dwell in buildings I'm a living God well here's the amazing thing God says I don't dwell in buildings but I want to dwell in people. That's a, an astonishing concept. The omnipotent, awesome, almighty God doesn't dwell in buildings and structures, but he condescends to dwell inside of us, to give of himself and his presence in your life, to live with you and to ex- let you experience him in the personal way, every way of your, of your life. And that he wants to be a part of our life. Now, Stephen, having shared this history of the nation, he then comes to his application point, and boy, he knows how to make an application. Verse 51, we conclude with this. He says, you stiff-necked. <laughs> the idea, it's a Hebrewism of you are utterly stubborn. You know, stiff-neck, the idea is nobody's going to turn your head a certain direction. You're just, you know how kids do? You just stiffen their neck up. They are not going to turn... You stiff-necked, he says, stubborn, and uncircumcised in heart and ears, that is, you're dull of hearing and your heart is like calloused. You always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets, he said, did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, that is, Jesus Christ, whom you now have become the betrayers And the murderers whom have received the law by the direction of angels, you know, angelic mediation was involved when Moses received the law, but yet when you receive the law, you have not kept it. Now, Stephen apparently did not go to the seminary of how to win friends and influence people. I I just, he seemed like he missed that class. I mean, he he just utilizes the word of God and then his application, let me make one application before I close. You stiff-necked, hard-hearted, clogged-eared, rebellious lawbreakers, why do you always resist the Holy Spirit of God? Why do you resist the Spirit of God trying to speak to you and work among you as God has done throughout all of history? You're now doing it again, he says. Now, please take note if I could, with one final application point, that the Bible shows it is possible 
to resist the Holy Spirit. The Bible does not teach irresistible grace. The Bible teaches God elects, God calls, God draws, God works, God woos, God does everything he can. For hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, I mean, for centuries, God was reaching and reaching. But here, the Bible shows that it is possible for a human being to resist the Holy Spirit. And how is resisting the Holy Spirit portrayed? Well, right here in the text, he says, you received God's word, but you have not kept it. So the Bible pictures resisting the Holy Spirit as hearing the voice of God, hearing the word of God, and resisting it and refusing it. And I think it's a good caution, honestly, for all of us because there are times when we are truly hearing God's voice. And in those moments when we're hearing God's voice, God graciously allows us to respond. And what we don't want to do is resist what God's saying to us. Again, can I ask this morning, is it possible in your life that you have been resisting what the Holy Spirit has been trying to say to you? Has God been trying to say something to you and rather than responding and humbly receiving what God's trying to say, are you resisting what the Holy Spirit is saying to you? Can I caution you? Don't do that. The Bible itself says that God says, my spirit will not strive with man forever. So there comes a time where God will strive and wrestle and speak and wrestle and speak. But if we continue to resist and resist and resist, there comes a time where God says, you know what? I'm going to give you what you want. So look, if you're here this morning and the Holy Spirit of God has been speaking to you, let me take a stab. And he's been saying, you attend church, but you're not saved. You're not, you're not genuinely saved. You attend church, you read the Bible, you listen to the message, you sing the songs, but you've never accepted my son Jesus Christ personally into your heart. And he's been telling that to you. And you're saying, well, I'm fine. I'm... Listen, stop resisting the Holy Spirit. You know when God's speaking to your heart. It's an undeniable thing when the reality on the inside is the Spirit of God is speaking to your heart and saying, you know what you need to do. Maybe you're here this morning as a Christian and the Holy Spirit has been speaking to you about something into your life or you've read in the Word of God or you've heard from the Lord. Can I encourage you? Don't resist what the Holy Spirit's trying to do in your life. If he's speaking to you about some sin or speaking to you about something you need to do or make something right, don't resist the Holy Spirit. Yield. Yield to the Holy Spirit. He'll give you the very power to do the thing that you're perhaps worried about doing, which is keeping you resisting. If you just yield, the same Holy Spirit will give you all the power to do what is right and experience what God wants for you. Let's stand together. Let's pray.